Welcome to or welcome back to Trust the Process Show. I am your host and my name is Chris Reed. On this podcast, I take you the listener on a journey as I bring on and talk to guests who have done incredible things and to really take the time to learn what their process was along their path to success. After years of being on my own personal and professional development journey, I started this podcast to celebrate the stories of awesome humans and to learn from the very best. Today, this is episode 33, and it's a good episode, ladies and gentlemen, because I sit down and connect with endurance athletes and world record holder for the fastest 100 mile run. His name is Zach Bitter. For those that don't know Zach, Zach is an ultra running sponsored endurance athlete, endurance coach, and most recently accomplished the fastest 100 mile track run by completing this in a astonishing 11 hours and 19 minutes. This is a must-listen episode. This guy, Zach, brings incredible insight, incredible wisdom and knowledge to what he's done and how he's helped others achieve great things. But before we dive into this episode, I need you to do me a favor. If you haven't done so yet, I need you to go and subscribe to this show That way you stay up to date on all the good new episodes that I have coming out, and it helps the show as well. So, if you like what you heard on this particular episode of Zach Bitter, do me a favor and take a screenshot of the episode on whatever device you're listening to, share it to your Facebook or your Instagram stories, tweet it out, post it on LinkedIn, don't forget to tag me in it, and let me know what you learned from Zach. So without further ado, episode 33 with the world's fastest 100-mile endurance runner, Zach Bitter. Welcome to Trust the Process Show. I'm your host, Chris Reed. Uh, Today, I'm excited to be joined uh, by new world record holder for a hundred miles running, Zach Bitter. Zach, thanks for uh, joining me on the show today. Hey, Chris. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Awesome. So, Zach, uh, like I mentioned uh, just in the intro, there, uh, you are a recent world record holder. But uh, one of the things um, I try not to label people on so much about what they've done. I think that's a huge component of what we are, who we are, but. I would love for you to intro to the audience about who Zach is versus what Zach has done. Yeah, you know, I've uh, I've been um, into endurance sports since since an early age, uh, but I've definitely had uh, a lot of interest outside of that as well. Um, you know, I, I grew up in the Midwest in, in Wisconsin before moving out to California in 2015, and uh, now I'm down in Phoenix, Arizona. But I've kind of like the west coast or southwest type of area something about those long midwest winters <laughs> make me kind of look for the more <laughs> eternal summer these days um yeah you know i went to school uh, at, a, at a, a smaller division three school in wisconsin called the university of wisconsin stevens point and there i went for uh, history and broadfield social science with teaching certifications uh, in all those broad field categories as well as special education. So before I kind of assumed running as my primary career, I was a, a teacher at both middle school and high school levels in Wisconsin cool. for about five years. Uh, yeah, and that, that just, that was a, a fun experience and not something I was looking to get away from necessarily, but with opportunities kind of coming with, with racing and competing and endurance sport as well as coaching and doing that sort of stuff. Uh, you know, that window tends to be a little tighter than, than a typical career. So I thought I'd try to take advantage of that while I was still young enough to do it. And yeah, that's kind of where I found myself today. 
That's cool, man. Um, so question for you, because I did read that you were a, uh, a teacher, you know, through school, that's where you started off. So what, um, you know, I, I think as we, as people, we, we kind of flock to our passion and I think our passion can change. Um, I call it chapters in life, right? Our chapters change and we do different stuff. So what made you really interested in, in teaching? Like what, it, what was about teaching that uh, kind of led you to that spot? Yeah, you know, my dad was a teacher uh, and an administrator at an at a elementary school. So that was probably my, my first glance into like what that, what that kind of entailed. But I think ultimately what drew me to the profession was I have a, I, I'm a curious person and I like to learn. So when I learn something, I don't like to kind of hide it. I like to share mm, it. And, okay. and teaching is all about that. It's all about kind of you know, not necessarily knowing everything, but being curious enough to kind of look into things. And then when you do find them, share them with others. Or if you don't know, at least kind of share the ability to or share, share the knowledge of kind of how to learn or how to, you know, find something or explore things like that. And that's always been kind of, kind of interesting to me. And it's, it's definitely something that I've carried forward, even though I don't teach in a brick and mortar school anymore, you know, through coaching and, you know, helping out some of my some of my sponsors with some of their their marketing and some of their uh, educational pieces uh, have been have been kind of fun fun way to kind of use that stuff outside of just uh, doing the the training and racing and that sort of stuff. Yeah, I mean, I guess kind of where my my head was going too as you were saying that. Um, you know, you're obviously an ath- athlete. You're doing some crazy races, and you're obviously doing very well, crushing world records, but you're also on that coaching side. So is that coaching side supplementing that old career of teaching to kind of take what you've learned through racing and sharing that knowledge to your students through your coaching practice? Is that kind of how that stemmed off? Yeah. And it actually probably ran parallel to to teaching to a degree as well. When I, when I first started teaching, I was coaching like cross country and track and field quite often. So once I had kind of gotten used to the, the, the schedules of teaching and, and coaching, I started also doing some online coaching for one-on-one individuals. And uh, that started to grow to the point to when I got to the end of my, my teaching career, it was uh, something that was an angle I could use as a supplementary income, as well as, you know, work with that, that, that educating process as much as I, I still, still wanted to do that. So it kind of grew within the same, the same area of teaching and then just continue to kind of fill, fill that void a little bit once I stepped away from the classroom. Mm. Very cool. Very cool. So curiosity is a big piece in uh, kind of who Zach is. Now, when we talk about trusting the process, you know, kind of what I hear with your process, kind of just going through that teaching side is, is that curiosity of uh, learning and, and sharing. But if we talk about the process and trusting that process as a ultra marathon runner, like what does that mean to you? Because I think it can mean many different things. And I'd love to kind of get your take because uh, I got to think that the process in becoming not only just someone who can complete an ultra marathon, but somebody who can run it the fastest in the world, that process has got to just be so dialed in. And we'd love to kind of hear about how you go about your days as this new world record holder. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because I think when you think of endurance sport, and especially when you start thinking of events that are more more popular or more tested, like those Olympic distance endurance events, we see a lot more I think concrete, like this is kind of the most proven, most likely way to get you your best result. And, and, you know, there's definitely some variance within that too. And then there's going to be individual components as well. But when you start to reach out into some of these ultra marathon distances, you just don't really have quite as much information as to like this being by far and away the number one process that's going to get most people where they want to be. Uh, I mean, there's definitely some of that there and we're definitely inching closer as more people kind of study and explore the sport. Uh, but I do think when you get into some of these races where the intensity at which you're performing is relatively low compared to their shorter counterparts, 
you find yourself in this position where all the variables of training in racing are still there from an endurance standpoint, but it just becomes the like, where do you put those pieces of the puzzle and which pieces do you have become more impactful or be like the bigger movers. And one of those is just that mental component. Uh, mm. When you think of, you know, even you, when you look at my hundred mile world record pace, which was, you know, just under seven minute mile pace, it was six forty-seven and a half, I think. Right. Uh, that's still relatively slow compared to like what I could run, you know, a handful of miles. in if I pushed all out for that, so that what that kind of tells me is it becomes more of a question of how can you mentally push yourself through low points and mentally push yourself through kind of self doubt throughout the course of that long day, you know, versus just, you know, kind of redlining and holding on as long as you can, which you, you can, kind of see it, especially near the end of some of these shorter endurance races. So that's always been kind of, kind of interesting to me about, you know, just being maybe part of a, an era of this sport that is learning a lot and is kind of trying to find out what are the best ways to go about this, both through training, through recovery, through nutrition and all that sort of stuff. So I guess my hope long-term would be uh, not necessarily to be, a world record holder. Uh, I'm confident that my record will get broken. <laughs> uh, I think uh, the cool thing would be to be able to say that I like left something in place that other people can learn from mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, use towards finding their best, whether that be running a race or something else in life. So that's kind of a, another more, I guess, a motivator for me personally. Yeah. Okay. So that's, and this is, so what I love about uh, being able to talk to guys like you is I, I find there's um, there's a theme, right? There's a, a common kind of theme of what people do here. And so I'm hearing like the mental point, which to me, I believe is got to be one of the most important aspects of, of anyone's process because externals, external barriers are stuff we can get around. Uh, but if we can't get through those mental barriers, those external barriers will never even get to us because we'll, we'll stop before we get to those. Um, and then I hear like leaving a legacy of sorts, right? Like that's what I'm hearing with you. It's not so much about the world record. It's what can I leave behind for the people after me? Um, is that, is that fair to say there with that legacy piece? Yeah. You know, and I think sport in general, it's always like improvements upon one year to the next or one generation to the next and you know some of the sports that are more popular you start to see like more incremental gains as we get closer and closer to kind of finding out where the kind of human physiological uh, limits are at and uh and i think ultra marathon running is still at a point where we're seeing pretty big gains at a lot of the distances that have been test tested and when i think about you know where the sport could end up being at some day you know knowing that if, if I do things right and I leave enough information and share enough of kind of my process that, you know, I can kind of be a piece or a stepping stone along the way to that. And that, that's kind of a motivating, motivating thing to me. Yeah. I mean, cause you guess you're in a, a pretty unique spot that the sport isn't really all that old and there is a spot to, to be that kind of OG or that, uh, that guy at the beginning who kind of set the tone for others to mimic um, and to learn from. So you mentioned a, a couple pieces there, right? So you have your recovery, uh, you have your probably your physical and your nutrition and then in, in your mental piece, how long did it take you to fine tune that? Cause that's a lot of balance. Plus just like every day, just life outside of like, you can't be a runner all day. I don't think so. How do you balance like, just life in general, probably, I think you have a wife or a girlfriend, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a wife. Yeah, so balancing, you know, marriage, all of that, like, what does that look like in terms of you ensuring that you're not overdoing it, you're not overtraining? Um, how do you keep balance in your life with everything going on? Yeah, you know, that's a great question. And I think it also kind of highlights a bit about what we talked about before with just my, my uh, path through life so far is like, I think you do have to be honest with yourself and, and recognize like, you know, just cause there's a lot of different things you want to be doing at some point you need to decide which ones you need to be doing now to meet your goals or reach the goals that are the most important to you. And, uh, you know, sometimes that may be at a sacrifice to something else. So, 
you know, if I had an unlimited amount of time and energy, I would still teach full time as well and train for these races and coach and do all these things. But, you know, you eventually have to start paring things down to where it's manageable. So kind of finding that and a lot of it, I think is a little bit of trial and error, just, you know, learning what you're physically, mentally, emotionally capable of kind of handling and bouncing back from on a day to day basis is uh, an individual process that I think takes a little bit of trial and error. Uh, But you can also kind of use other people's experiences as a bit of a compass. And uh, one thing I usually talk to people about with this type of thing, when we're looking at balancing training and life in general is you need to be cognizant of where you're at and where you want to be and try not to be too hung up on like looking at someone else and saying, well, this is what they're doing. Therefore I should be doing that right now. Because uh, if I look at myself, uh, you know, I, I train pretty high volume. And when I get into like my, my peak training for an event, I'm, I'm often hitting a 20 hours worth of workouts, whether that be, you know, running, strength training, mobility, and all that sort of stuff. But had I seen that 10 years ago and tried to jump right into it, I would have found myself probably, you know, quitting or stopping or, you know, just not being able to sustain that type of a workload. So looking at it, in terms of here's where I want to be, but knowing that it's very much a patient person's game that you want to be kind of micro stressing yourself a little bit uh, until you gradually get up to that point to where, where you find, find kind of your limits and where you kind of get to that spot where any more would be crossing the margin of diminishing returns and you don't actually get back anything for what you're putting in. And, and you know, that, that is a, is a long journey and balancing things and, and and looking at all the stuff outside of training itself, you know, I very much still work. It's just a little more conducive to my training lifestyle now than maybe it was when I was teaching full time. But keeping an eye on where stressors are coming from, whether it's you know family, friends, emotional stress, physical stress, like I'll get in training, and just uh, stress from work, stress from you know doing anything, anything in life really, and kind of trying to make sure that's balanced. And I think some things are really, really good at guiding you through that. And, you know, one I look at quite a bit is sleep quality. You know, if I see that my sleep quality is suffering, that's a kind of canary in the coal mine for me that something's off. Maybe it's off nutritionally. Maybe it's off with too much stress, too much work. Um, recovery is a, is a big one too. And I think that's just one thing you kind of learn a bit along the way. And if I notice it's taking me longer to recover from one session to the next, then I have to step back and ask myself, like, well, what am I doing that's making it take that longer? Am I going from micro stressing to kind of macro stressing? And that's taking up more recovery time and ultimately giving me less exposure to the stimulus I'm looking to get because I'm doing too much in these single bouts versus just a little bit more and spreading it out. And, uh, you know, things like that, I think are, are pretty telling. And once you get a hang of that, I think you can be pretty intuitive about it. Even your body does a pretty good job of letting you know if you're knowledgeable to see the signs and, and, and you are aware enough to kind of take advantage of those and respond to them as opposed to trying to, you know, push through for the sake of pushing through or doing it because someone told you to, or you think that's what you're supposed to be doing. Mm. You mentioned macro and micro stressing. What what does that uh, that mean? Yeah, so I can give you an example. Like if I were to go out and do a workout, let's just say for simplicity's sake, I wanted to do 400 meter repeats on a track. And uh, I decided to go out and do 20 of them one day. And I did all 20 of them, but it took me 10 days to fully recover from that. I could ask myself, was that a good thing to do? And the answer is probably, well, what could I have done otherwise? So if I could have gone out to that track and done eight of them, and then two days later done eight more, and then two days later done eight more and gotten 24 of those 400s in, in that same time frame versus the 20, that's kind of the difference between macro stressing and micro stressing. Mm-hmm. So how much is like too much, or how, when did you get enough to stimulate a response for growth and improvement and then stopping there versus pushing well beyond that and having to in, in essentially inherit an addition or an, an more than an adequate amount of recovery time that you need to invest to bounce back from that. And, you know, that's something that's maybe tricky for people to kind of get a hang of. I know 
you know, even someone as experienced as myself finds you, you find yourself making mistakes in that from time to time. And that's more or less part of the game. But as you get more and more into it, you make less and less of those. So you get more and more optimized. And, you know, that's another thing I like as being a coach too, is you'll work, I can work with people who are where I was at when I had first kind of started doing structured endurance training. And I can see a lot of things that, you know, that they're thinking they're going through that I would have, but I have the hindsight to kind of know, like, don't do that. That's a mistake. <laughs> cause I know I, cause I made that mistake or, um, here's the right thing to do. And I know because, you know, I've seen hundreds of other people kind of take that path or just knowing from my own experience as well. Mm. I, I really appreciate the, uh, having that I've never really looked at macro and micro stressing before. And so I was, I was training for a marathon and I was like going hard, probably over training. And, and I kind of didn't blow my Achilles out, but I, I, it took me out for probably about six weeks, which clearly I was macro stressing the hell out of it. Um, and you know what it probably was, I think you're, are you familiar with David Goggins? He's another ultra runner, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I was, I'm a big audio book guy or podcast when I, when I was running it's, it's, I, I find I actually, uh, take in more of the information and it helps me just kind of zone out and just get into the story. But anyways, I was training and, I, and probably the worst thing to do maybe was to listen to Goggins because I was listening <laughs> to his stories going, well, let's do another five miles. What's another five miles and I'll do it tomorrow. And um, I wasn't listening to my body. And I think coming back to even what you were saying before is just like being self-aware and stop focusing on other things, other people too. So uh, for me, I guess I was looking at like a guy like him, who's obviously years and years into this ultra running and the way he pushes himself similar to probably you is a lot different than I would somebody who's just getting into a training for a marathon. So I guess from going at this as a coach now, and you're, you mentioned, you know, you really love work with people and kind of sharing with them what you've learned throughout your process. Someone who's just getting into marathon training and they're like, they come to you and like, hey, Zach, I need to get coached. Like, there's a lot of things that I think could be overwhelming in terms of getting this process started, you know, with getting your diet on track and getting your recovery plan in place. How do you uh, help your clients get started so that it's not this like really overwhelming thing um, where it just kind of says, has, has them go like, you know what, maybe it's not even worth it because I just can't get all this in place. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I'll also say too, with the reference to David Goggins too, I, you know, I think, I think he's an incredible inspiration. A lot of people will, will draw from him and see a lot of success by following him. And I think, David would probably tell you, um, you know, well, he will tell you cause he tells you his whole story. But when you think of like his entry, you know, his first attempt was a failed run around the block. So I always try to share that with people be like, okay, you can look at what David's doing now and realize like, wow, he's able to handle an incredible amount of work and incredible amount of, uh, you know, stress and physical output but there was a point in his time where he couldn't even make it around the block and he knew that. So he worked his way up and he got to himself and you know, some of it is hard to wrap your head around when you get into ultra marathon running too, because the event itself is a macro stress. So you're almost kind of preparing yourself to eventually kind of roll the dice a little bit and do a macro stress and then accept the fact that you're going to need to kind of bounce back from that effort with a little more recovery than maybe you would if you didn't do quite as much. Um, but that kind of feeds into the question you said or or asked about too, with like the coaching and, uh, kind of how do you get started? And I think what you said that resonated with me was like, you know, people start looking at it and they start thinking, okay, well, I need to do this with my nutrition. I need to do this with my training. I need to do this with, uh, my sleep and all this other stuff. And I think those are all really good things to be mindful of, but I also think you want to be careful about trying to do too much too soon, just in terms of taking on life changes. So when I'm working with sometimes with people, what times we'll often do is we'll look at kind of where they're currently at. And rather than saying, okay, we're going to overhaul your diet, we're going to, you know, put a rigid bedtime down for you. And we're going to start working on training. We're going to kind of take some, some smaller steps and say, okay, let's first, let's start this piece. Let's work on the training piece. And then maybe we'll start making some slight changes to your nutritional plan 
and ultimately find out kind of where you want to be with that. And then we'll start thinking about, okay, what's a good time for you to get to bed so you get X amount of number of sleep. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in that order. And I think there's probably stuff that are more logical. Let's do this first type, you know, an order of process, so to speak. And I think when you kind of do it like that, people are able to take one of the phases or one of the things and, and really get good enough at it that they feel confident enough to take on another one. What I try to avoid is kind of like what I said before, throwing everything at once so that their stress levels go so high up because they've just basically overhauled their entire life that ultimately they end up falling off and not, not, even, not getting to where they end up wanting to be in the long term. Yeah, that's a great point. So easing into it, because um, as you were saying that, it, where I thought was like, okay, what we're doing is we're giving that particular client uh, some mental wins. They're they're mm-hmm. uh, you know hitting some goals that they never thought they probably could have. You know, like David starting. You know, client could be like they haven't run before, and getting a mile is that milestone, and then moving up. Um, now, I think as a coach, and, and this is kind of anyone going into a new process, but I'd love to hear what you do is there's probably two types of people and you have to create this going back to that balance piece, right? There is a group that's probably going, um, I really want to do more coach. Like I, I feel like I can run more and I'm feeling good and they're getting those, you know, dopamine hits because they're hitting their, you know, their next PR of distance or time, whatever that may be. And they want to go. I want to run the next day. This is kind of a, I'm only speaking actually from my own uh, experience. Cause I was like, Oh, I hit a half marathon today. Okay. Next, tomorrow I'm going to push it even further. Uh, but then there's also the, the under people that, you know, you can't push them too hard or else. And then they do this, like this flight, right? They go instead of fighting to do more, they're flighting to go away. So how do you suggest and, and how have you helped people maintain that balance where they're not underperforming to their potential and not overtraining to their detriment? Yeah. And when what you described there is one of the more interesting things about coaching and it kind of almost highlights the, the psychology component of it all. And, you know, you get, get these varieties of different people where, you know, you have the coaching client where I could give them an unlimited amount of workouts and they'd get it done even to their detriment. So for that client, I'm paying more attention about, well, we're, we're focusing on not doing too much. Whereas you get a client who, they, uh, you know, if you give them, you could give them seven rest days in a row and they would take every one of them gladly. (laughs) So, uh, not as often, I think when you get into paid coaching, because people realize they're trying to, you know, they're paying you for a reason and they're not doing it just to do nothing. So that's kind of maybe an extreme example, but you know, you do have that, you get the folks that they need that kind of motivation. They need a little bit more of like, you can do this, you know, just trust yourself, trust the process. And then you have the people where, you know, they, they want more and more and they're all, you're almost talking them out of doing too much and then everything in between. So I think really what it comes down to is making it a little more personable in that rather than being kind of robotic as a coach client, like get to know the person well enough so that you can kind of get an idea of what type of person they are. And a lot of times people know already, like I've had coaching clients in the past too, where I'll just right away ask them like, you know, what type of person are you? Are you the type of person who, if I give you something, you're going to just do it and then want more and more? Are you the type of person that's going to need a little more cheerleading, so to speak? And a lot of times people will will straight up tell you they want you to know because they realize that if you know more about them, they're going to be able to find their best self. Uh, So basically, like the more information you have as a coach, the better you're able to kind of guide them through it. And and most people are pretty aware of that. So Mm -hmm. I think it's, kind of an interesting component. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that's as a, I, I do executive coaching, so I don't, I don't do coaching for running, but I think that's one of the things I love about coaching is that uh, uncovering or having those people come to their own self-awareness of actually who they are. I think once they get that understanding of it's easy to focus on what we're really great at, it's really difficult mm. for people to focus on where they have challenges or they have, we'll call them growth opportunities. Um, so for you, like you mentioned at the beginning of the show too, that a lot of this comes down to this mental aspect, right? So as you start to coach these people, as the, whether they're just beginners or even going into these more high performing endurance athletes into to races and the tour, if you may, uh, how, how much of your focus on coaching is on that mental side? 
Yeah, quite a bit. And I think that's where a lot of times people will reach out. Um, you know, they, most people who come into the ultra marathon running, they've done some form of training or they've, they've done like, you know, a, a marathon or, you know, another endurance training plan in the past. So it's not, you know, complete newness. Uh, so they're, they're more curious about, well, what can you share with me that, that I don't know yet? Uh, or how can you guide me through that, that unknown, so to speak. And, you know, you see it a lot in ultra marathon running because it's such a wide range of, of distances and trains and things. I think you can have everything from a 50 kilometer race that is super mountainous way up above sea level. Or you can have something that's like six days long where you see how far you can run in six days on a real flat, short loop surface. So, and everything in between. So you get people kind of coming into the sport and then also they'll, they'll get an experience a little bit. Well, what's next? And they'll a lot of times skew towards, I'm going to try to do a longer event. Well, then they're entering into another unknown. They're going to try to run further than they ever have before. Or if they are the type of person who wants to like pick one distance and just see how fast or good they can get at that, they can say, well, if I went this quick, how much quicker can I go next time? So, uh, you know, looking at, looking at that, I think is really interesting because for me, I've been in the sport long enough now where I have experience with a lot of those different things and a lot of the different races too. So some of it's just sharing your own experience and saying like, well, we're going to try to get you in the most positive mental space to, to get your goal done. So some of that's just coming up with what is the goal and then uh, arming the, the client with the resources that they're going to need to kind of combat the self-doubt. Because the way I describe an ultra marathon is, you know, self-doubt is inevitable. There's going to be points in time during the event where, you know, you doubt what you're doing or you question why you're out there or you make excuses in your mind as to why you should stop or why you should slow down. And I think teaching people to recognize that, that recognize when that inner voice starts flaring up to see it for what it is and then redirect. And a lot of that just comes with developing confidence in trusting their training plan and trusting that they've done what they need to do to get to where they, they are. So I think one of the big responsibilities for me as a coach is to convince my client to be able to believe that what they're doing is what they should be doing. Because the more they believe that, the better it's going to be for them to get to say mile 50 of a hundred miler. And when that self doubt creeps up, they'll catch it and say, okay, I know this is how I feel, but I did the work. Um, I trust my coach. My coach said this was going to happen. And they said, if I do this, I'll push forward. And they can kind of spiral it back towards a positive thing. And the positive self-talk kind of is also something that can spiral or gain momentum too. So if you can catch the negative stuff before it builds momentum and change it to positive, I think that's a huge tool for ultra marathon running when you, especially when you get to the later stages of the race and that, that kind of negative self-talk becomes a little more easy to flare up on you. Yeah. I got to imagine that, uh, as you were kind of saying that, I know the training regimen, like I have a friend, so I, uh, I'm part of this group. We call ourselves the Viking group. We meet every Friday morning. I live on Vancouver Island. Um, and we, we meet and we run this mountain, uh, twice up the mountain. Uh, but I had a friend who just finished, there was a hundred K up here on Vancouver Island called the Finless and arm race. You should come out if you've ever tried, never done it. Um, but it was his first time. So as you're thinking, I was kind of reflecting back to, to Adam's kind of journey, which he's done and, and just finished his first 100. It was 100K. Um, but you do all this training. So you almost get used to the training, right? Like, okay, I'm going into training next day. I have the plan. Uh, my coach has given it to me. Whatever it may be, is you've created the process. So you get used to the training aspect, but what doesn't come and it's very rare is actual the race time. And there's no experience yet that's been developed in our brain to understand that component. Although we've done the training, is that a fair statement? Because I, there's so many hours that go into just one day, uh, but that those days are so little and far between for many people getting started. Yeah, no. And that's a, that's a really good question because I think like, 
a lot of times what people want to know is like, is what I'm feeling what I should be feeling versus is this a bad thing or a good thing? Cause it's really hard to tease that out. And I think nerves are maybe the best example of that. And it's like, you'll, it's inevitable that you're going to get nervous. So when people who are new get nervous, it's, it's maybe a little more fearful because they don't necessarily see that as kind of part of the, the whole situation. So for someone like myself, who's done a bunch of different ultra marathons, had a variety of different successes and a variety of different shortcomings and things like that through that. If I can sit down and talk to a coaching client and say, Hey, what you're experiencing is normal and natural. You don't need to fear it, but just recognize it for what it is. It's very helpful to them to know like that they're not doing something wrong and kind of have that anxiety get out of control. So one thing I'll, I'll sometimes share with someone doing a race, especially if they're, they're new to it is, you know, the, the nerves, the days leading up and the nerves, the morning of, or before the race, the night before the race, that's, that's normal. And that actually shows you care because had you not done a bunch of work, invest a lot of time, invested a lot of energy into being ready for this, you wouldn't be nervous because you wouldn't care that you were out there. You wouldn't have anything invested in it. So the fact that you're nervous tells me that you do care and that you did do the work. You did invest the time and energy. So you know, trust that feeling for what it is and don't let it get out of control, but know that it's not something that is, is going to be detrimental for you if you can compartmentalize it properly. Mm. That's the ner nerve show you care. I think that's a great quote and it's, it's true. And I think it's, it's interesting as humans, when those nerves come up, we have this like really uncomfortable uh, feeling because they don't often come up. And I think especially the more you care about something, the more intense that feeling is. And, you know, as someone probably training for an ultra marathon, even for, like for yourself, do you get these nerves at the beginning of races still? Yeah. Yeah, I definitely do. And I think it's, uh, I like sharing that because it, I think it highlights that even if you've done, you know, say 50 or a hundred ultra marathons, um, and done them at a high level and you get nerves like that. It tells someone who's just getting started or someone who's still trying to find where their, where their potential is. It lets them know like, okay, this isn't something that, uh, that I'm not getting this because I'm, I'm, I'm not ready for it, or I'm not getting this because, because I'm not good enough or something like that. Whereas I think that's when those nerves and the anxiety can spiral in the wrong direction when you, mm when you see it as a negative as opposed to a positive. Yeah. Or unnatural, I should say too, maybe. Totally. You, um, are you familiar with emotional intelligence? Um, I don't think so. So emotional intelligence is really the state of like being, it's about understanding our emotions. It's about, um, how our emotions affect us and others. And I, I just, so part of what I do with, I mentioned as a coach is this area, me and my wife, we have a coach practice. We focus a lot on emotional intelligence because emotions are really what drive people or, or push people away. So I just want to comment, you got this really high emotional intelligence of just understanding that uh, we ultimately have a choice with how we want to be about something. And what I heard there is like, you know, these nerves could really be a negative. I could choose to make these a negative or I could choose to make these a positive emotion. Um, and at the end of the day, we get that, that choice, that, that choice is ours. Yeah, no. And that's, that's great. I think people a lot of times will, they'll, they'll get an, an emotion or an experience and they don't really know what to do with it. And if they would just step back and kind of look at it and play it through their mind as to like, well, if I react this way to that, that's going to get me in a worse situation. Whereas if I act this way towards that, I'm going to find myself, you know, in a better situation. And that kind of actually ties in well with the inner race stuff we were talking about just mm -hmm. before about, you know, recognizing when your, your mind starts creating doubt or trying to talk you out of doing what you're trying to do recognizing that and saying, well, if I let this keep going like that, this experience is doomed to be, or guaranteed to be, uh, you know, be bad or be, uh, uh, come off the rails. But if I can turn this around and recognize that this is a natural state for what I'm in, what I'm doing, then, then I can get it to kind of get the momentum shift backwards the other way, or at least give yourself the opportunity to attempt to. 
Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so the mental resiliency is, is really there. Where do you, like, where did you learn this? Do you listen to motivational speakers? Do you read books around this? Do you have anybody that you follow that kind of feeds that inner resiliency? Uh, yeah, you know, I think it, some of it comes from, like you said, just, uh, I, I don't necessarily go out of my way to find like motivational speakers or anything like that. But I think being of a, just being aware of, uh, what other people are doing at a high level is, is a good way to kind of, kind of see that stuff and then, and talking to them and being willing to listen to what other people have to say, as opposed to like, you know, doing all the talking and none of the listening, I guess is one way to look at it. So like, you know, recognizing how great other people are at certain things. And when you see that kind of like saying, well, well, why are they doing what they're doing and how are they doing it? And asking questions and listening to why and stuff like that. I think especially in the sport of, of ultra marathon too, where, you know, like I was saying before, there's a lot of different disciplines and a lot of different, uh, terrains, distances and things like that within it. So it can be, you know, I can get really good at one of those and that may come at the expense of being as good as I could be at a different one. So knowing like when you look at someone who is really good at that other one and then going out and trying it yourself and realize like, Oh wow, that's how much work they had to do to get good at that. You know, it, it can be eye opening when you get yourself kind of in those situations sometimes where you're not, you're not quite as, as uh you know, adequate at it as you'd like to be in a perfect situation, it can kind of help you maybe recognize like some of that stuff from the other people or drive that motivation because you start to understand how much work they must have done to fine tune to the level that they did to get to where they were at. Mm. Totally. No, I think absolutely. So, but I'd imagine there's a lot of people that look up to you. I mean, you're again, the world record holder for, for trail and track, I believe, correct? Yeah, I have uh, the 100-mile world record for just outright um, and then the world record for distance run in 12 hours. And the the world record for the trail one is a little more nebulous because it's like it's tough really because like what is a trail? It's like hard to really define. Sure. So ultimately, you just you can get a, a, a course certified to be a trail. And ultimately, it ends up being a very, very runnable trail and questionably a trail. So um, that one's a little harder to maybe, it's not as concrete as just like, okay, this is a distance. And regardless of what the terrain was, that's how fast it was done. Um, like what you get when you're doing some of these flatter, faster things like I did a couple of weeks ago. Uh, but um, as far as it's been tested, I have the fastest uh, certified trail time. Yeah, I was, was going to say, because I mean, there's probably some trails that you've done that are just so ridiculously hard. And then for to you, like being a, obviously a elite endurance athlete, and there's probably some that are a little bit not as difficult. And I'm sure there's, you know, depending on the, the uh, elevation and the location, there's probably a, a many different variances compared to just running on a, uh, a flat uh, track. So I can, I can appreciate that. But I was going to go with that is like you are like on the top and there's probably a lot of people that look up to you, um, whether they be your clients, whether they just be fans or people coming into the sport. But who do you look up to? You know, it doesn't have to be an endurance like an ultra marathon, but is there someone that you look up to that you really would be like, man, that gal or that guy really um, have that and, and you just kind of hone in on what they do or what does that look like for you? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I like to kind of have uh, an evolving view of that and how always have like be, be looking for those type of individuals. And, uh, you know, they, I think like if you ask me that question every six months, I may have a different answer for you every time, okay. which I think is good. I think that's the way it should be because that means you're actively seeking out that motivation from other people. Um, you know, my there's been a few that are a little more recent for me and in depends on how like acute we want to look from a time frame standpoint uh i know my wife uh is one of the one of the reasons why why i married her was because you know i always saw myself as a hard worker and i i definitely am but uh when i saw kind of 
her lifestyle and what she was able to handle, it was like, oh, there's a whole nother level to this. So, <laughs> so it, you know, you, you have people like that in your life, I think, that pop up um, unexpectedly sometimes where you get to a point where you think, okay, this is, this is the ceiling to this. This is where my bandwidth ends. And then you see someone else who's on a whole nother level and you're like, okay, uh, maybe I didn't find the end to it. So she's definitely a big one and a, a, a routine fixture in my life. Uh, you know, a more recent one though too was uh, this year when I was I was actually pacing and crewing my wife out at a race in California called the Western States 100. And uh, while I was doing that, I was also paying attention to the men's race just out of interest. And uh, the two guys who went first and second this year both went under the previous course record. And I, I know them well enough. They live about a couple hours north of north of me, so I have a, an idea of kind of what they're doing in training. And just knowing how much work they put in, and uh, you know how much they were willing to maybe risk to show up on that race course as fit as possible, but also kind of on that razor's edge where they may be a couple workouts away from overreaching, um, and then you know timing it just right, and then nailing their races. Uh, I thought was in, a really inspiring for me and it helped me kind of like take the step, the next step I had in my upcoming training block to prepare for the, the race I did where I had the hundred mile and 12 hour world record. Yeah. That's insane, man. That's a lot of running. Um, what do you, cause how big are you? Like what's your, how tall are you and what's your weight? Uh, I'm five, nine and about 140 pounds. Okay how much food do you have to eat in a week <laughs> to, uh, to maintain that level of, cause I believe you're also, you're, you're, uh, you're on a fat only diet, correct? Yeah. I, you know, I, the, the food intake thing is interesting because it's funny cause you know, I'm a relatively small person, but sometimes I'm eating for two or three of me, depending on what kind of oh, so part of the say, year I, I am. Say, cause I've seen pictures. You look a very, a very lean guy. Um, and I've, I got to think just, that has got to be such a huge piece to all of this is that nutrition aspect. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it's interesting because like when you look at endurance sports nutrition in general, kind of like what we talked about at the beginning of the, of the episode where, you know, there's a lot of science and there's a lot of uh, tested, uh, you know, outcomes in some of these more commonly done like Olympic distance uh, endurance events where uh, I find it interesting is you start stretching out the distance. What you're doing is every time you're moving up the distance, you're also lowering the intensity at which the race can be performed. So by the time you find yourself doing a hundred mile races, you've lowered that intensity of race pace by a, a pretty big margin. And that lowering in intensity also opens up the opportunity for, I think a much more diverse fueling strategy. So a lot of times I think, at least from what we know at the moment is, uh, you know, there's not necessarily a one size fits all or a, a protocol that it works for this person. Therefore, everyone should do it and it's going to present the same results. I think it's a little more of a like, well, I need to find what works for me within the context of some parameters. And for me, that's, uh, you know, I like to do a higher fat diet. So sometimes I think people get confused and they think it's like a zero carb diet or a, a strict keto diet day in and day out. And, uh, and this is kind of like the, the parameters I was talking about. It's like, you know, are there times during the year where I'm going to be zero carb or very close to zero carb? Yes. But they're, they're very much thought out in terms of they're the times a year where I'm either recovering from a race or having recover be the primary uh, objective versus trying to, you know, perform. And, uh, what it ends up doing is I'll end up flexing kind of my carbohydrate intake up and down based on that. So during my most intense phases of training and highest volume phases of training will also be matched with some of my higher carb intakes, which is still relatively low compared to what you're going to see in a typical endurance nutrition protocol. So for me, that ends up being like maybe around 20-ish percent intake of carbohydrate during some of those higher phases of training. Uh, and since, like, since my goal is to be able to run for a very, very long period of time at a relatively low intensity, 
I just think it's a little easier to rely on that uh, the fuel substrate from fat as it as I would maybe need to do if I was doing an event that was up in intensity and like above threshold or you know in some of those higher zones of training and racing. Mm. So there's a few ways you approach it depending on the the goal that you've set in the goal being uh, the particular race. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's even some uh, nuance, I think, within ultra running in general, because, you know, like we talked about before, if I were out to try to do a fast 50 kilometer race, that's, you know, that's just a small margin above a marathon. So I would probably fuel differently for that versus say, if I went and decided to try to do a race that was you know 24 hours long, where, you know, I'm almost, you know, I almost stand to benefit from running slower. Well, I definitely stand to benefit from running, running slow, uh, in order to make it sustainable for that 24 hour time. And when you're, when you're running for, you know, that slow and that low of intensity, you just have more options. You don't, you're not trying, you don't, you don't need the fast acting fuel as readily as you would maybe if you're trying to push, push like a marathon pace or a 5k pace for, for, uh, for your goal event. Right. You mentioned 24 hour race. Now you're running, you ran the, uh, 100 mile world record in under 12 hours. Yeah. I think it was 1119. Mm-hmm. So when you run a 24 hour race, how many, what's your, uh, how much, how many miles are you running in a day like that? Yeah. So I haven't actually finished a 24 hour race yet. It's a, okay. an event that uh, I want to focus a lot of time and energy on at some point. It's also, you know, I try to be cognizant of just where I am age-wise and kind of where I am just in terms of my own career too, where some of these longer ultras, like the 24-hour stuff, you don't have to be like as young to really be able to do those effectively. There are some that I think you do benefit from being a little younger. So I'm trying to make sure I don't invest too much time while I'm still young enough to be uh, competitive and, and, and potentially exceed my previous best, you know, and leave that on the table at the expense of some of these ones that I can invest more time in down the road. So um, I'm actually heading out to, to Greece this weekend to do a race called the Spartathlon that oh, is cool. 153 miles. Wow. And that one, the course record there is 20 hours and 25 minutes. And I think it's almost two hours faster than the next fastest performance Holy or the next really? fastest person. So in all likelihood, being at my first time out there, it's, I'm going to probably get awfully close to 24 hours. So that'll be, I'm hoping anyway, that'll be a nice experience to kind of bridge the gap between what I've been doing currently in my career versus, you know, versus the 24 hour, which I'd like to kind of spend more time and energy in down the road. Yeah, that's insane. 153. It's, um, when you do these big races, like I've never done ultra, are you able to wear headphones or are you just running and there's nothing in your ears? Yeah. You know, most races they do let you listen to, to music or podcasts or anything like that. Um, there are some that aren't, uh, like world championship events typically don't let you, although I think the 24 hour world championships does, uh, Spartathlon has a rule against listening to music or listening to anything. So for that one, I'll have to be be without it but you know usually i will especially in some of these timed events where like you're fighting off monotony as much as anything because you're you know when you're on a 400 meter track just doing loops all day long uh, you're you're trying to separate yourself from the environment right versus some of these scenic trail races where you're trying to kind of almost live within the moment because you're always seeing new things you're experiencing new new areas and stuff like that so some of those races i think are a little more uh a little more designed to not necessarily want to tune out and throw on headphones because you're in a really cool place and it's exciting and there's nuance. Whereas, you know, once you see the first loop of a small loop course, you've seen the whole, (laughs) you're not getting anything new. Yeah. 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 (laughs) How hard is it? Like when I run, like I mentioned, I think earlier here is I listen to audible or podcasts and it helps me just kind of zone into whatever the story I'm listening to or the podcast episode, but running like i think when to go running especially a long distance like just with myself i have a real struggle with that so is that something that you struggle with too like when you're in greece and you're out there for you know you say you're going on probably going to be about a 24-hour race you know where you're aiming to hit 
that's a long time to be with yourself. So how do you prepare for that um, mentally? Yeah, you know, I think uh, one thing I like to do, and some of it will be kind of learning on the fly since I'm doing it for the first time. But if, uh, if there's any carryover from what I've done in the past, I think it is really beneficial when you're doing some of the workouts that are the most specific to the race itself, kind of putting yourself in that mindset so that like you've almost done a dress rehearsal or multiple dress rehearsals before. So for this last race I did, like since it was on a 443 meter track, I was doing all my long runs out on a approximately 400 meter track. And if it was say like a 30 mile long run, I would work on that thinking like when I started, it'd be like, okay, I'm 70 miles into this. Um, I'm in this position to break the world record. I got 30 miles to go and then just taking it step by step so that when I get myself in that position during the race, I had already kind of worked through that mentally at some point. So it wasn't completely new. Mm -hmm. So we try to replicate that to a degree with a race you haven't done before or a distance you haven't done before. Um, and I think there, you, you can still kind of do that even though you haven't done it before, but ultimately you're, you're going to have to do a little, a little learning on the fly, I think, and, and probably pushing past some limits that you maybe haven't done before. And, and that's probably the exciting thing about doing something new or going up in distance with some of this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's super interesting. Um, just kind of how you have to just set yourself up to as best as possible, be in a situation that you're going to put yourself into so that the brain doesn't hop into that flight mode. It sounds like. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Cause you are definitely, you're, 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 you're doing a lot of balancing. Cause I think like, you know, especially when you rested up right before a race, you know, you're feeling about as fresh and as about as fit as you ever have. And just knowing that like, by the end of it, you're going to be kind of a shell of yourself physically for a little bit of time is kind of an, an interesting concept to me to know that you can, you can kind of change that direction so fast, even with a long event like that. But, you know, kind of, I think knowing that as long as you kind of keep it in the right perspective is, is just good. Cause then you're not necessarily being surprised by as much. Mm -hmm. What, uh, I know we're kind of coming close on time, but one thing that I would love to ask you too, though, is in your recovery process, because recovery is so important, do you do any cold exposure to help with uh, your recovery? Yeah, you know, it can depend a bit because I look at recovery in kind of two different ways. Like one is, am I recovering to be able to get back and perform again as quickly as possible? Or like, you know, if it were, I haven't done any stage races yet, but like, if I would, I would be thinking like, okay, I need to kind of hack my system to feel good the next day, even though I'm not going to fully recover from the previous day's effort. Um, and then there's the one where you finished your kind of big goal race and you have just time before you're going to start getting into it again. And you really do want to slow things down and let your body go through the full kind of healing process. So rather than trying to like mitigate swelling and inflammation, like letting the body go through those processes. So in general, I'm just like, you know, you're, when you do an ultra marathon, like your legs are pretty wrecked. So you, you definitely want to get that blood flow down there. So like cold water exposure can maybe generate some blood flow down to the area and increase the nutrient available to those. Uh, I'm, I'm more, I'm, I'm going to be like a little more light on just forcing myself to do anything at that point. I'm going to try to move around a little bit just to kind of like get the blood flow into those areas that are needing to get healed. Um, and then focusing on getting, you know, high quality proteins and things into my, into my diet too, so that, you know, my body can eventually get, get stronger from that effort. Mm. Cool. That, that's good to know. Um, what's your, what's your kind of favorite protein? What do you, are you a meat eater or how, what's that diet look like? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, uh, when you look at the science, you know, you're gonna, you're, you're gonna get more bang for your buck, so to speak with an animal based protein, um, from a bioavailability standpoint anyway. So I'll do, I'll do a lot of like red meats and eggs and things like that. Uh, dairy, especially when I'm, when my, my shift goes primarily towards recovery. How much protein do you take in a day? 
Um, you know, I, I take in probably at least 150 grams. It's pretty rare that I'm below that. Uh, you know, one thing I found really interesting and I've learned a lot from in the last couple of years through the podcast I co-host is we've had some of the like leading protein researchers on the show and they were, they've been telling us just about how kind of the, the most recent studies on protein has been uh, indicating that if anything, we've been kind of undershooting our recommendations, especially for athletes. And then as endurance athletes, they tend to get into this mindset of, you know, like protein and muscle growth as potentially being a negative because they don't want to get bulky and which is kind of silly when you think about it, when you're training, when you're training aerobically as much as someone like I do, like you're in such a catabolic state, the majority of the time that, you know, the odds of you getting bulky are, are, are pretty low. Hmm. Um, yeah, so, so I've, uh, you know, I'm, I'm no, I don't regular, or I don't like restrict protein to any degree. And it's probably around 150 grams in most cases, but I don't, get worried if it's much up if it's up above that yeah so there'll there'll be days where i go well above that too cool now i'm a big red meat eater too um so it's good to know that uh meat is okay in this process in terms of uh, achieving uh this type of goal so cool man well what would you suggest you know what or what would you recommend for anyone getting started into uh running especially from a coach you know one they could probably hire you but Anyone looking to get into either be marathon running or ultra marathon running, what is your suggestion into these people's goals to to be successful? Uh, how would you what would you say to them? Yeah, you know the thing I like to share the most is like a lot of times I think people they'll pick a race or maybe it's a specific race or course or a specific distance, and they they gravitate towards their interest in doing that versus their interest in doing the training required to that. So what I like to share with people is like, you can pick the longest ultra marathon out there. And even the long amount of time you're out there for that is relatively small compared to the amount of time you're going to spend preparing for it. So your best, your best opportunity to get your full potential and actually get a meaningful experience is to, you know, pin the race you're doing to the type of training you want to do. So if you want to do the training that is required to run like a hundred mile race, then you should pick that. But if you'd rather do the training that's required to run a five kilometer race, you should pick that. And I think when you look at it from that perspective where I'm going to enjoy the process uh, as much, if not more than the race itself, then that's good. Cause then even if you don't have the, the, if you don't meet the goal you were trying to do in the race itself, you don't feel like it was an ultimate failure and I think that's what makes it sustainable because then you keep coming back. And then over time, you will find that race that you're looking for or you'll get that performance you're looking for. So I think that's the sustainable way to look about it. And the other thing I share with people too is like, um, I think as adults, sometimes we feel like we've been, or we, we assume we've been boxed into like a relatively small amount of options for moving our body and getting into shape, um, which is kind of the opposite of what I see kids doing. You know, kids would just go out and play. They go out and have fun and they're, they're, they're moving a lot because they want to be doing what they're doing. So there's no reason why adults can't look at it that way. And there's a lot of opportunities to, to move and be healthy and, and get exercise. So it's best to pick an activity that motivates you and that you're excited about doing and that you're going to enjoy doing regardless of what the outcome is in, in the event that you picked a target to kind of get you there. Mm. I really like that. Uh, Cause normally I hear a lot of, figure out your goal and then work back. And I think there's an element to doing both. It sounds like it's, you know, if your goal is to do an ultra marathon, but if you really can't commit yourself to that type of training or you're not prepared to do that type of training, you really are setting yourself up for, for failure in some respects. So being able to understand like, what is that goal, but what else is, what are you able to, what is your goal for the process? And I think you hit a big word there was just like, enjoying it because um, if you're going to slog through every day of just hating uh, training towards something then that's really not doing anyone any good um, so that's an interesting perspective I appreciate that yeah no and I think it's like it's ultimately it's like asking the why because you know if I ask someone like well why are you training for that race and they say because my doctor told me I had to get into shape <laughs> and then I'm going to say like well let's look at all your options to getting into shape and find the one that you actually enjoy versus, 
you know, the one that you think is the only way to do it. Right. That's cool, man. Well, quick, before we, uh, before we end off, I'd love for maybe you to tell us just a quick little bit, if anyone wants to get uh, involved with you and your coaching, uh, how would one do that? What does that look like? And uh, just maybe quickly walk through that process for us. Yeah, you know, most of uh, the ways to get a hold of me can be found through uh, my website at zachbitter.com, so Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R.com. Uh, there they can reach out if they want to sign up for a consult or sign up for ongoing coaching or connect to me on social media. I'm most active on Instagram and Twitter. Okay, cool. Well, I'll put uh, in the description of the episode, you'll find the link and the uh, links, links to the website and links to your social if anyone needs to get in touch. But Zach, uh, it was really awesome having you on, man. Again, your, uh, your accomplishments are inspiring, but uh, it's great to kind of pick your brain and understand how you go about uh, achieving these. So I hope uh, the people listening got as much value today as uh, I did from you. So, Yeah, well, thanks for having me on, Chris. It's been a lot of fun. Awesome. Thanks so much, Zach. All right, everybody, you have done an amazing feat. You have made it to the end of the show. Thank you for taking the time out of your day to join me on Trust the Process show. I hope that this hour and a bit gave you as much value as it gave me to uh, interview a guy like Zach. So if you haven't done so, remember, don't forget, please, remember to subscribe to the show you can do that on spotify apple Podcasts, stitcher google Podcasts, whatever major podcast platform you are listening to this on subscribe you by you subscribing helps the show out immensely it allows me to continue to bring on incredible human beings to dive into what their story is and how their process unfolds into their path for success so Thank you, and remember to trust the process. Hit me up on social media if you have any questions, comments, or concerns. But stay tuned for the next episode. We have some incredible guests coming up, so stay tuned. All right, folks. Peace out.